Stephen's speech. Now, Stephen, actually, when he gives this long speech, is not going to defend himself against the charges. Not once in the speech does he really defend himself against these charges. Instead, he's going to point out that they're the ones in the wrong. He is not the one who's blaspheming or violating the law or the temple or any of that kind of stuff, but that they have over the years. And that God has moved from that to Jesus And he's moving now to this new group because they have messed it up. And then suddenly he will will work the gospel into that. And what this is, is this is the very, very beginning where we're going to begin to see the distinction between the church and the Jews. Right now it's, it's been Judaism. And Jesus the Messiah has come to the Jews. And the Jews are supposed to be Messianic Jews. And the Jews will be the church. And the Jews will spread the gospel. And the Jews will be Christ's followers. That is the point. But it's at this point that the rejection of the Jewish leadership will be so great and almost final that we will see for the very first time after chapter 7 the beginning of Jews and the church. A distinction that God never intended to happen. Never intended to happen. But it only happened because of their rejection. Is it a straight out rejection that they recognize that he is, but they're holding on to the power? It's not a ignorance in, in blinding themselves. For the Jewish leadership, the, the Gospels and the Acts make it very clear. They knew this was from God and they attacked it. For the everyday normal Jew, it might just be more ignorance. It's following the government, it's following the media and not really thinking for themselves. And the same thing we have today, like the powerful people in government right now, not all of them, but there's a good number of them. They know what they're doing is evil and bad. They know that they're intentionally destroying the economy and doing things to hurt people, but they don't care because it's power. But yet there's a lot of people in the government who are probably just scared to stop it, don't have the power to stop it. They're caught up in the flow. They're tempted into the power that they're gaining. Maybe they don't really want to, but they're torn. There's the everyday normal American who may not see it. They just follow the flow or whatever, that kind of stuff. We're all guilty of that to certain degrees. That things happen in the church, things happen at corporations where people in power are like, yes, I don't care about people. I'm going to do this intentionally for money, like insurance and other things. But then there's other people like, but there's nothing I can do. There's nothing I can do. There's all different spectrums, but the higher up you get, the more intentional it is. It's just hard to understand. You understand that he is, and you've dedicated your whole life. But you didn't dedicate your whole life to him. You dedicated your idea to a teaching about him that brought you power. Not him personally. This is why Jesus looks at him and says, if you knew the Father, you would know me. But you don't know the Father. Because as much as you look like to the people that you know the Father and you dedicate yourself to Him, you've dedicated yourself to power. And this teachings about the Father is what gave you power. That's your God. That's your God. The first section of Stephen's speech deals with Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant. So he's going to go historically through the life of Israel. But he's going to camp out in some places and gloss over some other things. So he starts off with Abraham and the Abrahamic covenant. The second section deals with Joseph delivering his family from the famine and bringing them into Egypt. The third section deals with Moses delivering Israel from Egypt and giving them the law and the tabernacle 
and then their rebellion against the law in the tabernacle in the, in the wilderness. The fourth section deals with the temple and its relation to Yahweh, so David and Solomon building it. And the fifth section deals with Stephen addresses audience with an indictment of them being hard-hearted, stiff-necked, just like Moses said to the Jews of the wilderness generation of Deuteronomy. So that, that's the chronology outline of it. He will be more detailed in the beginning and middle and less detailed towards the end. But I want you, when we go through the speech, pay attention to three themes. There are three major themes that Stephen develops here. First, the major theme that Stephen develops is that Yahweh has been faithful to the Jews throughout the thousands of years, no matter what. Even though they're not worthy, even though they don't deserve it, Yahweh has been faithful. The second major theme is that God cannot be confined to the things that men built with their own hands. Their own hands. What you built with your own hands. That you can't build something and put God in it and control it and gain power from it. And the third major theme is that you have always resisted God and attacked his people. And you're doing it again. Those are the three major themes. So as we read through, pay attention to the theme of God has always been there for them, no matter what, and faithful to them, delivering them, no matter what. The theme that God does not live and dwell in things created by men, nor can you control them with things created by men. And the third theme is that they've always been attacking and trying to destroy God. Not every single Jew but the intelligentia, the powerful, the elite. We will go through the speech, and then we will unpack each one of those themes. Then the high priest said, Are these things true? So he replied, Brothers and fathers, listen to me. The God of glory appeared to your, our forefather Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he settled in Haran. And he said to him, Go out from your country and from your relatives and come to the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the country of the Chaldeans, which is another word for the Babylonians, the ruling class of the Babylonians, and settled in Haran. After his father died, God made him move to the country where you now live, Canaan, which is now Israel. He did not give any of it to him for an inheritance, not even a foot of ground. Yet God promised to give it to him as his possession and to his descendants after him, even though Abraham as yet had no child. But God spoke as follows, Your descendants will be foreigners in a foreign country, whose citizens will enslave them and mistreat them for four hundred years. But I will punish that nation and serve as slaves, said God. And after these things they will come out of there and worship me in this place. Then God gave Abraham the covenant and circumcision, and so he became the father of Isaac and circumcised him when he was eight days old. And Isaac became the father of Jacob, and Jacob of the twelve patriarchs. The patriarchs, because they were jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him and rescued him from all the troubles and granted him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, who made him ruler over Egypt and over all his household. Then a famine occurred throughout Egypt and Canaan, causing great suffering, and our ancestors could not find food. So when Jacob heard there was grain in Egypt. He sent our ancestors there the first time. On their second visit, Joseph made himself known to the brothers. And again, Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. 
So Joseph sent a message and invited his father Jacob and all the relatives to come, 75 people in all. So Jacob went down to Egypt and died there, along with his ancestors, our ancestors. And their bones were later moved to Shechem and placed in the tomb that Abraham had bought for a certain sum of money when the sons of Hamor and she- from the sons of Hamor and Shechem. But as the time drew near for God to fulfill the promise he had declared to Abraham, the people increased greatly in number in Egypt until another king who did not know about Joseph ruled over Egypt. This was the one who exploited our people and was cruel to our ancestors, forcing them to abandon their infants so that they would die. At that time, Moses was born, and he was beautiful to God. For three months, he was brought up in his father's house. And when he had been abandoned, Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. So Moses was trained in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was powerful in his words and deeds. But when he was about 40 years old, he entered his mind to visit his fellow countrymen, the Israelites. And when he saw one of them being hurt unfairly, Moses came to his defense and avenged the person who was mistreated by striking down the Egyptian. He thought his own people would understand that God was delivering them through him, but they did not understand. The next day Moses saw two men fighting and tried to make peace between them, saying, Men, you are brothers. Why are you hurting one another? But the man who was unfairly hurting his neighbor pushed Moses aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? You don't want to kill me the way that you killed the Egyptian yesterday, do you? When the man said this, Moses fled and became a foreigner in the land of Midian, where he became the father of two sons. After the 42 years passed, an angel appeared to him in the desert of Mount Sinai in the flame of a burning bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And when he approached it to investigate, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of the fathers, your forefathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Moses began to tremble and did not dare to look more closely. But the Lord said to him, Take the sandals off your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. I have certainly seen the suffering of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their groanings, and I have come down to rescue them. Now come, I will send you to Egypt. This same Moses they had rejected, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge? God sent as both ruler and deliverer through the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. This man led them out performing wonders and miraculous signs in the land of Egypt at the Red Sea in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. This is the man who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our ancestors. He received living oracles to give to you. Our ancestors were unwilling to obey him, but pushed him aside and turned back to Egypt in their hearts, saying, Aaron, make us God who will go in front of us. For this Moses who led us out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has happened to him. At that time, they made an idol in the form of a calf and brought a sacrifice to the idol and began to rejoicing in the works of their hands. But God turned away from them and gave them over to worship the host of heaven, which is another word for the angels or gods, or to the demons. As it is written in the book of the prophets, it was not to me that you offered slain animals and sacrifices 40 years in the wilderness. Was it the house of Israel? But you took along the tabernacle of Molech, a pagan god of the Moabites, the star of the god of Rephaim, another pagan god, the images you made to worship, but I will deport you beyond Babylon. Our ancestors had the tabernacle of testimony, 
in the wilderness, just as God, who spoke to Moses, ordered him to make it according to the design he had seen. Our ancestors received the possession of it and brought it with Joseph when they depossessed the nations that God drove out before our ancestors until the time of David. He found favor with God and asked if he could find a dwelling place for the house of Jacob. But Solomon built a house for him. Yet the Most High does not live in houses made by human hands. As the prophets say, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of a house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is my resting place? Did my hand not make all these things? You stubborn people, with your uncircumcised hearts and ears, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit like your ancestors did. Which of the prophets did your ancestors not persecute? They killed those who foretold long ago the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You received the law by decrees given by the angels, but you did not obey it. The first thing, Stephen develops a speech of the faithfulness of God, despite all of Israel's track record. He begins by stating that it was God who came to Abraham. Abraham didn't deserve it. He was not worthy of it. Joshua 24 tells us that Abraham was worshiping the pagan gods of Mesopotamia when God came to him. Yet God faithfully came to Abraham. And in chapter 26 of Genesis, he quotes this, where basically he says, I will give you a land and I will multiply your descendants. This is rooted in the first time that God promised this in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Where God came to Abraham, even though he didn't deserve it, he was not worthy of it, he was a pagan who worshipped God and said, I will give you land, I will make your descendants great, I will bless you so that you can be a blessing to the world. That's the faithfulness of God. And then not only that, he appeared to Moses, Abraham multiple times. He was faithful to give him a kid. And even though Abraham didn't receive the land in his own lifetime, he was faithful to give it to them later, despite all this. He made a covenant with him. He didn't have to make a covenant with a human. No other gods ever did. But he made a covenant with him and promised them. And then he was faithful to bring them out of Egypt. He was faithful to bring them out of Egypt, even though they were worshiping other gods in Egypt. And they were resisting the things of God and and, and mocking Moses, their leader. So he was faithful to do that. Then he was faithful to call up Moses to deliver them. He was faithful to, to give them a tabernacle where not only would they have a tabernacle, but the tabernacle actually contained God, unlike the pagan temples, and the tabernacle actually lived among them, on the ground, in the midst of them, unlike all the pagan gods, which were way off in the middle of nowhere on a mountain that no human could get to. God actually was faithful to live with them. He gave them a tabernacle. Despite this, they still worshipped other gods. Yet despite this, God still took care of them in the wilderness. He still delivered them. He brought them into Israel and gave them a land that they could live in. And then he lifted up faithful leaders to continue to guide them throughout the years. And so over and over he says, God has always been faithful to you. This is the God that I serve. I know our history well. I haven't said anything in this speech that contradicts the Bible. In fact, the idea is he's quoting the Bible so often that it shows that he has a mastery of it and he understands it. He's not anti-Moses. He's not anti-God or temple or any of that kind of stuff. He's not anti-circumcision. All this he proclaims. God has been faithful to you. Now, not only is he highlighting the faithfulness, but this becomes even more prominent in the third theme. It makes the third theme of them resisting God stand out even more by the fact that he highlighted the faithfulness of God. So that brings us to the second major theme. 
Stephen develops in his speech that Yahweh cannot be confined to a building and that true worship is not institutions or rituals, but focuses on a relationship with Yahweh. Once again, these three themes are all interwoven with each other and they flow simultaneously with each other in and out and next to each other throughout the entire speech. So that's the beauty of it. Unfortunately, when we unpack it, we have to separate these strands. But once you understand these strands, it would be good for you to go back and reread it to see how they're not only separately there, but they also play off of each other and help each other develop even more. That's the beauty of this speech. It wasn't just one idea and a second idea and a third idea. There are three different ideas that are woven in each other. And then the way that they're laid on top of each other, they help amplify each other even more. And so this first theme becomes even more powerful when it's laid next to and interwoven with the third theme. So the second theme, Yahweh appeared to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and there was no temple. The glory of God appeared to Abraham, right there. And then he appeared to him a second time. And in fact, if you know Genesis, he appeared to him more than twice. In fact, one time he actually came into the tent of Abraham with his two angels, and yet there was no temple at all. Then he appeared to Moses in a burning bush. He actually then literally saw the glory of God in the burning bush. And there was no temple. Later he appeared as a pillar of fire and smoke and lead them out of Egypt into the wilderness. Now he doesn't mention that, but I'm going to mention that. And yet there was no temple. And the point that he's starting with is God doesn't need a temple. In fact, the most amazing encounter of God to Abraham, your founding father, and to Moses the founder of the, not the founder of the law, the giver of the law, and, and the deliverer of us out of Egypt, the two greatest men in all of Israel history. There was no temple. God appeared to them in the glory. There's no temple. God doesn't need a temple. And then he goes on, he says, and then when God had them build the tabernacle, he, they built it according to his specific instructions. So even though it was built by human hands, it wasn't really built by human hands because it was God's blueprints. And in fact, Exodus makes the point that they built it exactly the way that God commanded it. And even goes through five chapters repeating all the way that they built it again so that you can take the five chapters of instructions and the five chapters of how they built it and overlay it and realize they did it exactly the way that God commanded it. And then at the end he says, they did it exactly the way that I commanded it. Why does God spend waste for in quotes not really so many chapters on the building of the tabernacle to make the point that it was not built by human hands it was the blueprints of god it was the design of god every little detail was done by god and he indwelled that and he lived among them in that but even then it was just a tent there was nothing glorious about that tent courtyard was 150 feet by 75 feet. That's this room. The tabernacle itself was 15 feet by 45 feet. That's not big. It was on the outside, it was porpoise skins. It was a dirt floor. There was nothing oppressive about it that the people could say, look at us, we have that. That's amazing. And it, it moved around, so nobody had ownership over it. The tabernacle would move from place to place to place, and it would be with this tribe and with that tribe and that tribe, so nobody could say, it's ours. We own God. 
And, and there was nothing incredibly impressive about for people to say, this is beautiful, it's because of ours. What was impressive about it was the glory of God was in it. It wasn't about the tent. It was about the presence of God. But they, they built an idol with human hands. And they worshipped the idol with human hands. And then eventually they brought pagan gods into the tabernacle. Now the word tabernacle means dwelling. So they chose other gods to dwell in the tabernacle of God with them rather than Yahweh. So when they did have a tabernacle, they chose to replace Yahweh with other pagan gods. And so he quotes Amos, and where Amos 5, where it literally says, Amos says, I'm going to deport you from the very beginning. You brought other gods into the house and the tabernacle of God in the wilderness. And even today, now you're bringing other gods into the temple. And this is why I'm going to deport you. You have a reputation of replacing God in his own house with other gods that you made with human hands. And so they replace the images. So when he quotes Amos, he replaces the word images that they brought into the tabernacle with the word tabernacle. Because the dwelling represents God, just like images represents God. And so he used the word tabernacle to show that they dwelt with these gods rather than God. And so God gave them specific instructions to not make this human hands. So then Yahweh goes on and he develops the idea that David wanted to build a house for God. This is a difficult phrase here. It says it could either be he wanted to build a house of Jacob, a house that Jacob would dwell in, the temple, where Jacob could dwell in the temple with God, or it could be translated that he built the house of God. The, the difference is, is this a house for Jacob to dwell in and have community with God, or is this a house that's going to contain God, that he actually lives in? Now, the Greek is difficult here. Many scholars say that there are some translations say the house of God and some say the house of Jacob. And so which translation is right? Or it's manuscripts, early manuscripts. Many scholars say, well, it probably is more likely that it's the house of Jacob because it's more likely that a scribe would see that and say, that doesn't make sense. It's not a house of Jacob. It's the house of God. And they would replace the house of Jacob with the house of God, thinking that was a typo. But then the problem is that that doesn't work either because Stephen's quoting David, not quoting David, but referring to David wanting to build a house for God. And David in 2 Samuel chapter 7 literally says he wants to build a house for God. If Stephen's going based on history, it would make sense that he's saying they wanted to build a house for God. David wanted to build a house for God because that's literally what David asked for. But then some people say, but that doesn't make sense because it seems more difficult for that way. So now if that doesn't make sense, you can go into the notes a little bit deeper. I tend to take the fact, I know my notes said one thing, but I tend to take the fact that it should be the house of God because that's what David wanted. Now when David said, I wanted to build a house for God, God said, I never asked for a house. I don't want you to build a house. If I wanted a house, I would have asked for one. What I asked for was a tabernacle. And you built a tabernacle according to my commands. And... And in all my days, I've never said, I want a house. Build me a house. I want the tabernacle. And then he goes on and says, David, you cannot make my name great. I will make your name great. And I'll make your name great because one day I will lift up a son after you and he will build my house. But then God switches the word house from meaning literal physical house 
to household. And he starts talking about this son building descendants and a family. And God promises to bless the house of David. And the house of David would sit on the throne forever. And the house of David would produce a king. And so God makes it very clear that David is not allowed to build him a house because he doesn't want a physical house. But God is going to build a household and descendants and a family for David. And eventually a king would come from that. And he would build a house, the family, the body of Christ. That's the implication. So Solomon comes along and says, I'm going to build him a physical temple. And he builds him one. And the Bible makes it very clear that's not what God wanted. Because not only did Solomon build a house that God said, I don't want a house. But he built a house that was glorious and beautiful. And actually hide the glory of God. And all people saw was, look how amazing that temple is that we built. God commanded that no tool or hand was allowed to carve stones. And altars represent God. So that when you came to the altar, they were stones that God fashioned in nature. And so that you couldn't say, look at that. Look at what I built. As you're making sacrifices to God. But yet he used tools to fashion the temple. The temple actually looks like a Phoenician pagan temple in the way that it's structured. The temple became centrally located in Jerusalem only, so the Jews in Jerusalem began to say, we're better than everybody else. We have the temple and you don't. And then he built things in the temple that were pagan. He brought pagan ox in, the images of oxes, and brought them in the temple. He brought images of cherubim. And then in the Kings, it literally says, in the cherubim, the angels of the wings, their wings overshadowed the Ark of the Covenant. That word is never good in the Bible. And if you look at the description of it, the angels were way bigger than the ark, and their wings covered it, and the, the ark was buried under angelic beings. And later it'll say the angel, the Israel began to worship all the heavenly hosts, all the angels in the temple of God. Where did they get the idea to do that? And so there's all these reasons why the temple was not good. And so what Stephen is saying is, But Solomon built a house for God made by human hands that cannot contain God. And then he goes on and he quotes Isaiah 66, that God cannot be contained in a temple. God cannot be contained in a house. All of creation is his, which will be followed up by the prophecies of Ezekiel, where the temple will be destroyed. And then it will be rebuilt by the king, the prince, who is Jesus. And of course, the gospel writers go on and the epistle writers go on to make the point that that new temple is Jesus. So God eventually allowed the temple to destroy because he didn't want a temple. Because what he wanted was the descendant of David who would be the temple and the house of God. Because he literally would be God. And we would dwell with him. And we talked about that. In my house are many rooms. And I'm going to prepare a place for you. And so what Stephen is saying here is that you built the house. God didn't. And the house can't contain God. And you know that. What the house is, the house contains all your proper thinking and theology that you can control. And what you're defending is the temple and not God. And you've made the temple into be something that it's never meant to be. The tabernacle was a place that you encountered God, but you've made the temple a political, social 
powerhouse for you. And when Jesus came, he doesn't say this, but when Jesus came, did he look upon the temple favorably and what you had done with it? No. You are the ones who are blaspheming and slandering the house of God, so to speak. So then he goes on and he develops the third theme. And the third theme becomes even more powerful in light of the first theme. The third theme is that you've always been rejecting God throughout your entire life. And he goes back to the point of Joseph. He says, the, when Joseph would receive the dreams of God, what is the first thing the brothers did? They rejected God and Joseph. The one that God chose to deliver them, they rejected. But then when they encountered Joseph a second time, they accepted him. And they accepted the one of God. What Stephen is now doing is setting that up as in, that's the way it's supposed to be. It's understandable as sinners and flawed humans when God does something new and different that we might reject and be skeptical and not accept it. But then when God comes to you a second time, it should be obvious, oh my gosh, this is God. This is the second time I've seen it. It's acting. Now I'm going to accept it. So this is the model. So just like that, Egypt experienced God one time through Joseph. And then they rejected it. But then they're going to experience God a second time with Moses. And then they're going to reject it. And what is going to happen? The judgment of God. The ten plagues. So Moses came to the people one time when he tried to deliver them. By killing the Egyptian. And they rejected him. So then he came to him a second time 40 years later to deliver them. And what did they do in the wilderness? Reject them. So what did God do? He brought a judgment on them and all their bodies died in the wilderness. And so then now what he's saying is that God then came to you as a people with Moses the first time. And then he quotes Deuteronomy chapter 18 where he says, And a day is coming when I will send a prophet like Moses, and you are to obey him and follow him, and he will be unlike any other prophet. And then the righteous one, Jesus, came and you rejected him. And that's why the judgment of God is coming on you. And then he goes on and says in the little cherry on top, and you also killed all the prophets. Was there not a prophet that you did not persecute, marginalize, chase into hiding, and ultimately kill? And no matter how many times you, they came to you, you rejected and rejected and then killed them. And then what did God do? He brought the exile on you. Judgment. So he goes throughout the history and shows that God keeps coming to you different over again. And always two times. The first time and the second. First and second. And different people. And every time, Moses and Joshua and all these people. And you keep rejecting them every single time and eventually judgment always comes. And that's what you've always done. And then they stab the knife in a little bit. He says, you are stiff-necked, hard-hearted people. This is exactly what Moses did in Deuteronomy chapters 1, 2, and 3. He went through the whole history of Israel in the wilderness and said, you rejected them, you rejected them, you complained, you rebelled, you quarreled, you even tried to kill me who represented God. I thought I was going to die so many times when you came at me. You stiff-necked, hard-hearted people. You're always like this. And that's why your parents died in the wilderness. And if you don't learn from that, God's going to deal with you the same way. And then he says, but you're incapable of doing it. 
Because you need your heart circumcised. And only when your hearts are circumcised will you really truly be able to obey God. And that's what makes this last thing so powerful. Because Stephen acts like a second Moses in a way. So they rejected the first Moses. And now Stephen stands up like a second Moses. Going through their history of all the rebellious ways. Just like Moses did in Deuteronomy 1, 2, and 3. And then he says the same thing that Moses did. You stubborn, 51, people with uncircumcised hearts and ears. Now this would have jabbed them because they pride themselves. We're the circumcised. Unlike those uncircumcised people, we're better than them. And then, and we're not like the early generation anymore because we're actually circumcised. That generation wasn't even circumcised. They disobeyed God. That's why their children had to be circumcised as adults because they didn't do it right. But we are. And Stephen says, you're the wilderness generation. It doesn't matter about the flesh. Your hearts and your ears are uncircumcised. You have not the Holy Spirit, nor do you actually listen to what God is saying. You are always resisting the Holy Spirit, like your ancestors did. Our ancestors are the evil people in the wilderness. They're the people who worship gods and go into exile, not us. We don't worship idols anymore. Which of the prophets did your ancestors persecute? They killed those who foretold long ago the coming of the righteous one, who betrayers and murders you have now become. You received the law by decrees and given the angels, but you did not obey. You're the ones who are actually violating the law by murdering people. So notice he doesn't defend himself, he turns it on them. You pride yourself in being the descendants of Abraham, you don't follow him. You don't connect him and talk to God and connect him like Abraham did. You're not descendants of Abraham. You pride yourselves on being circumcised. Your ears and your hearts are uncircumcised. You pride yourselves on having the law and keeping it. You're murderers. You think you're so great because you have the temple. You build it with your own human hands to put your own God of ideologies and political power in it. You're worshiping that rather than Yahweh. I'm the one that's violated these four things. You're the ones. That's what he's doing. That's how he brings it all together. Now, to show you, it's not about really the things of God. It's about them. Notice the response. Verse 54. When they heard these things, they became furious and ground their teeth at him. They don't attack him until after they say, he says, you are the murderers. All the things that he said, not once did they get mad. All the things that they said, but when he attacked them personally, they got so mad they're willing to kill him. That shows you that they weren't defending God. They weren't preaching the gospel. I mean, yes, if I'm preaching the gospel and somebody gets mad at me at what I'm saying, that might be hurtful. Like, well, did they do a good job or something like that? But if they try to kill me, that has more to do with them than it does with God. They ground their teeth at him. That's a lot of anger. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, looked intently toward heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Look, he said, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Now the contrast here is when they're attacking him at the very beginning of the speech, he had the face of an angel, content, not controlled by rage or anger or power. Then when they're fierce and grinding their teeth, he was calm and full of the Holy Spirit. The evidence before them now proves that he is being led by the Spirit and they're not. 
And then he says, Behold, I saw heaven look. The idea of Jesus, a Galilean Nazarene, a low-class backwater swamp boy who came from non-prestigious background, standing at the right hand of God in heaven would be absolutely insulting to them. Unfathomable. Pharisees stand at the right hand of God. Sadducees stand at the prestigious. Remember, if, if you're wealthy and healthy and have lots of stuff, then God is blessing you, which means you're obedient. If you're poor and you're sick, then you're disobedient and God's punishing you. You're a poor Galilean or an illegitimate child. There's no way God would put you up on the right hand. So when he sees that and they hear it, that would be, what? How dare you? And then he says, he's standing. Kings don't stand for anyone. You come to the king. And the king's sitting on his throne. And you walk in, he never stands for you. To stand is to honor somebody. And you walk in. But if the king stands when you come in, that is the greatest honor he can give to you. In fact, we, there, there's really hardly any instances in all of human history of kings doing that. Because most kings are really arrogant. And what Stephen says, I see Jesus standing. Which means Jesus saying, well done, good and faithful servant. This is the huge contrast between them and Stephen. But they covered their ears and shouting with a loud voice. Oh, there's a little toddler. No, 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 not listening, I'm not listening, I'm not listening. Sticking their hands in their ears, their fingers in their ears. How immature. And with a loud voice, they rushed at him with one intent. And when they had driven him out of the city, because you can't kill people in the city, that's a violation of the law, they stoned him, and the witnesses laid their cloaks at the feet of the young man named Saul. They continued to stone Stephen while he prayed, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And then he fell on his knees and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when they had said this, he died. And Saul agreed completely with the killing of him. That's powerful. These are the words of Jesus as he's literally being stoned. Stones being slammed down on your body. Big stones that take two hands. Being slammed down on your body and your skull crushing you. He is praying, forgive them, God. They do not know what they're doing. That's someone filled with the Spirit of God. Everything here shows this is what it truly means to be a godly man godly woman. Their rage, their intent, the priest didn't give a verdict. There was no trial. There was no verdict of guilt laid upon them. This is an angry, irrational, out-of-control mob because he insulted them at the end. They're not angry that the law has been violated. They're not angry that God has been desecrated with idols. They're not angry at any of that stuff. He insulted them as being murderers, just like their evil ancestors went to exile. And that's what makes them kill him. And that is the final proof of Stephen's speech. Ironically, they make Stephen's last final point for him. When they're so angry, we're not like that, and then they enrage kill him. That's the final point. That's how powerful a speech is when your audience makes the final point for you. That's how well you did your speech. And then ironically, what's happening is Stephen's the second Moses. And now they're killing him the second time, like their history has shown, which is going to bring a judgment from God. 
And not only is Jesus the second prophet of Moses too, because he's the righteous one that um, um, Deuteronomy 18 prophesied, and then they killed him. But then in a way, they rejected Christ, the first coming, and now they're rejecting the body of Christ with the Holy Spirit in them after Pentecost. So that's the second rejection. So we have three second major rejections just by these people. These people killed the second coming of Moses and the prophet that would come according to Deuteronomy chapter 18, Jesus, the righteous one. These people killed the other type of second Moses, Stephen, who's giving a speech just like Moses. And these people are killing the body of Christ after they killed him the first time on the cross and now post the Holy Spirit indwelling them. So they're kind of killing Jesus a second time. Don't carry that too far. Okay. And what all these three things are showing, you're rejecting him a second time. Three times all at once. This is the special judgment. This is why 70 AD is coming. And all this makes Stephen's point. This is why the gospel will begin to go to the Gentiles. Not that no Jew can ever come to Christ and be part of the church, but the elite, the power, the nation as a whole has officially rejected Christ and the gospel at this point. The nation as a whole is now under the judgment of God. Individual Jews can escape and come to God. But this is the point that Jesus made when he came to the fig tree and noticed that there was no fruit on it, which was a symbol of Israel. And so he turned around and then cursed the fig tree, showing that they're under the judgment of God because they continue to reject them. Now the nation as a whole is outside the, the will of God. They're outside the will of God. And this is what's going to lead to the scattering of the church. And one final note, it says one little thing, and Saul stood in approval. As they threw their cloaks. Now, your cloaks are the most expensive thing that you have on you. So if everybody is throwing their cloaks there, thousands and thousands of dollars worth of materials, this is like throwing your wallets and your purses in front of them. That means he's highly respected to take charge and protect all that stuff. He is well known and well respected as a man that can keep guard of this. But the other thing is it says he stood in approval. And so this is the very first introduction of Saul of how evil he really was. That he watched this and approved of it and was proud of it. And this Stephen was one of the greatest examples of the Spirit of God working in the church. And this gives you an idea of what Paul is going to become later. This is a huge contrast. Chapter 8, verse 1 B. Now in that day, a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were forced to scatter throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Some devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentations over him. But Saul was trying to destroy the church. Entering one house after another, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Stephen's speech riled the Jewish leadership so much that it sparked the built-up powder keg of their hatred of Jesus to explode against his followers and outright persecution in Jerusalem. It is this persecution that then drove them out of Jerusalem. Only the apostles, who felt very called and committed to being in Jerusalem and preaching the gospel there, remained. 
The remaining Christians were driven out of Jerusalem because the persecution was so intense, and they begin to scatter to other regions, fulfilling the, the, the commission of Jesus in Acts 1.8 of going to Judea and Samaria and the ends of the earth. And Saul not only approved of the killing of Stephen, but then actually began to make it his mission to hunt down the Christians, drag them out, and, 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 and persecute them and put them in prison. And this would, was one of the reasons that also led them to fleeing Jerusalem and that kind of stuff. So you see the intensity of Paul's commitment to driving them out of the church and, and, and pushing them back. So it is from this point on now that we're going to see the gospel moving further and further and further out from the heart of Jerusalem. 